Hello, Artie here, and welcome to something new we're trying out, which is our roundup of some of our favorite episodes from the last year, 2023. So over the holidays, and as this year comes to a close, we're releasing a Best of 2023 series. This is by no means objective and making plenty of tough decisions to leave a few favorites out, but also featuring some newly unlocked patron episodes that people have been asking for for a while. So we'll be releasing one every weekday, and we'll be back with the first episode of the new year on January 8th. In the meantime, we want to say thank you to all of our patrons. It means a lot to us that we're entirely independent. We don't do ads or sponsored content and are entirely listener-supported, so your support goes directly to helping us make deeply researched episodes just like the ones you'll hear this week. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, stay alive another week, and see you all in the new year. the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism at your local bookstore pre-order a copy of jules's new book coming in january called a short history of trans misogyny or request them both at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore so i am here today with my co-hosts phil rocco hey and Abby Cardis. Yo. And today, the three of us are going to be checking back in once again on the largest single concentration of insurance loss in the history of the United States, which is currently in progress, ongoing. And we've been reminding people of this fact every time that we talk about it. It's just this sheer scale of what is being called the quote unquote Medicaid unwinding. Um, now, this is something that we've talked about for what, the last two and a half years, Phil? Yeah. Yeah. Two and a half years. We talked about it before it started happening, as it was ramping up. And now we are on month seven of it actually taking place. And we've been reminding people, you know, this is the largest single concentration of insurance loss in U.S. history. And, you know, we're starting to see that framing reproduced in other media outlets and coverage of the unwinding, which is great. But I also want to acknowledge the fact that this specific point we have received so much pushback on. Mostly people just saying like, well, that can't possibly be true, right? <laughs> well, um, it is. So, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it is. You know, already the 10 million people and counting who have lost their Medicaid so far since April 1st vastly outnumber any other large moments of insurance loss in U.S. history. Like, for example, we had nearly two million people who lose Medicaid under Trump in uh, 2018, 2019, and 600,000 people were kicked off of Medicaid under Reagan in the course of about a year. But none of these approached the scale, right? None of these incidents have ever approached the scale of what we're seeing now. We've only ever seen this type of increase um, across insurance markets and things like that. And actually, we've never seen an increase of this scale in this amount of time. So what we're dealing with, I just really want to emphasize, because I think this point is kind of going over some people's heads, but what we are dealing with is something we have never experienced in the United States so far. 
And this is a, a kind of acceleration of many of the dynamics of the insurance markets, of managed care, of Medicaid, of state funding, um, that we talk about all of the time, right? But this is a kind of concentrated, uh, high-octane look at a kind of vertical slice of what the public-private model of healthcare actually does in terms of material impact on, on people's lives. So, you know, since this, you know, unwinding of Medicaid is so much bigger, and since we are just over halfway through this year's uh, long process, we're going to cover some of the updates. We're going to talk about some of the ways uh, the pain of this is being blunted and how that could be pushed so much further and is sort of so inadequate in response to this year's scale of what we're looking at here. So just to update folks on the numbers, the latest count of people who have been disenrolled from Medicaid as of November 1st is 10,046,000 people. 71% of those people have been disenrolled for administrative or paperwork reasons. 2 million of those people are children. And I want to pause now for a moment on scale again. And I just want to start us here because... This is important, yes. Yeah, I think this is really hard to conceptualize. So we have had just over 10 million people purged from Medicaid so far, seven months in. Um, how much is left to go, Right. And I think an important question that I've been really surprised to not see discussed in a lot of the reporting, though, there was a recent Kaiser Health news piece called Worse Than People Can Imagine, uh -huh. Medicaid Unwinding Breeds Chaos in States that does mention this. That number 10 million, you know, how many people was that out of? Because when this started on April 1st, we had the most people on Medicaid ever in the history of Medicaid. There were over 94 million people. So I think a lot of people may be assuming that, okay, out of those 94 million people, one third nearly of the U.S. population, oh, okay, we only lost 10 million people, only 10 million people were kicked off. That's not so bad, you might be saying, right? But Yeah, it's just 3% of the entire U.S. population. <laughs> like, Yeah, no right. big deal. But that's also why I wanted to start us here, because it's 10 million so far. And not all of the 94 million people have gone through redetermination yet. It's happening in a rolling manner. And officials have actually only reviewed eligibility for 28 million of those 94 million plus people enrolled when the so-called unwinding started. So that means that 9% of the total beneficiary population on April 1st has been disenrolled. 17% have had their coverage renewed. There are 4% of beneficiaries who are currently having their review analyzed right now. It's pending. And that leaves 70% of people, 70% of that 94 million plus number who have not even been reviewed yet. Two thirds of beneficiaries have not had their case renewed. And I think that is really important, really, really crucial context to put this whole thing into perspective. It's not like, okay, we had 94 million people in this program. They did cuts and we lost under 10% total, right? This is so far. That's, you know, the, the people who've been reviewed so far, total, it's 28 million people and 35% of them have been kicked off. And 71% of those people, again, were kicked off, even though they likely still qualify just for paperwork reasons, just for administrative errors. So I just really wanted to start us there. You know, I'm not usually the person to be like bringing in raw numbers, but no. it's actually really hard to wrap your head around how states could possibly fucking process the remaining two thirds in the next uh, yeah. five months, first of yeah. all. But second, you know, just how much misery potentially actually lays ahead. This is really just the surface of yeah. the unwinding that we're seeing. 
I just did some really quick scratch pad math. So 10 million out of 28 million people evaluated so far is, as you said, about 36% uh, of people that have gone through the redetermination process have been disenrolled. And if we extend that to the 94 million people that were on Medicaid as of, I guess, April 1st of this year, um, and assume that, you know, a similar, it's going to be a similar proportion that shakes out to like 35 million people being disenrolled yeah. from Medicaid. Well, That's 10 th- million more than the the highest estimate I've seen too. Uh, but cool. I also, you know, I also want to put it in context of a few sort of counter arguments or, um, I don't know, people basically trying to tell me that this is not a huge uh, deal. Um, yeah. You know, the... The one argument that I hear is like, well, the reason that it's the largest disenrollment is that we had the highest level of, you know, coverage in U.S. history, the apex um, in in terms of the number of people coverage, not not just because of the pre-existing kind of ACA expansion, uh, Medicaid expansion. Now, and, and so so the argument is that like. You're not you're taking into account the like whatever this is just in terms of the number of people covered at all. It's much higher than it was in the 80s or 90s or or whatever, uh, early 2000s. Um, But the point here is that like to say that and to say that as you know, with the implication that um, somehow this is less alarming, disconcerting, um, absolutely a, you know, unforced um, error uh, that is going to lead to misery that is not calculable in simply the number of people who lose coverage um, is to ignore the fact that, like, essentially what we have done is create a situation in which we prove that we could give lots of people coverage, um, that it, you know, the sky did not fall and, you know, not, you know nothing bad happened except, oh, I don't know. Uh, people like were able to see their, you know, primary care providers more or, you know, get needed treatments or, you know, whatever. Um, the, you know, don't have to worry about whether or not they need to, like, get a colonoscopy by the end of calendar year. Um, and so, like, to, to say that is to, is to not acknowledge that, like, this is a policy failure because what we've done is we've shown that we can give people something that measurably improves their lives, improves their, and Abby can probably get into like the life chances and a number of health outcomes. And then we can say, you know what? Oh, actually, um, what is the word of the person who is presenting at MacPack? I'm trying to think what her phrase was. It's like, you know what? It's a great, it feels like a TED talk. Like, you know what? It's just a great thing. We, we show that we could like give all these people healthcare. And now, like in the same way that, that Medicaid worked to expand during, you know, the first years of the pandemic, now it's going to work in the sense that it snaps back. Mm. And it's just yeah. like, that is not so. And I think that you see this reflected in the way that even people who are really astutely covering the unwinding, I think there's this great sense of like, okay, you know, yes, this is horrible. But then the question is like, what do you do um, about it? And then you have to get into a question about how the system should be different because if mm. you're if your primary assumption or your primary criterion for evaluating what good Medicaid policy looks like is the system does not change. It basically the policy basically looks like what we had when we went into the pandemic with maybe a few tweaks. Um, then then you're going to read this in a way that's like this is somehow OK, this is things returning to normal. And that requires you to ignore everything that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or everything that we collectively know about 
One, the whole structure of like social policy expansion and retrenchment, like it's still retrenchment. If you expanded it and now you're taking it away, that's called retrenchment. That's usually a thing that's associated with conservative parties in the Mm -hmm. U.S. and Europe. All right. Um, And then second, you also have to ignore everything that you know. It's not just like a quote unquote like deadweight loss of coverage. You like people had coverage. Now they don't have it. So you can actually expect and is measurable that, you know, mortality rates for certain populations are going to increase. So you're doing something knowingly that will worsen health outcomes. So then you have to justify that. Yeah. I, I, uh, I want you to keep going, Phil, but uh, as you've been talking about this, uh, it's also very interesting to me because another way of, of making this argument is just like simply kind of like, oh, it's like just regression to the mean. You know what I mean? Like we've been in an extreme situation and it's just, and I feel like that introduces this this layer of like naturalistic fallacy into talking about what's going on um, with Medicaid and through the unwinding, which in turn, I think, mystifies, you know, the, the, the policy choices that are contributing to this situation. Anyway, just a little sidebar. Part of what I have so much on my mind right now is like all these echoes of the discussion about Medicaid expansion during the ACA, right? So... <laughs> Yes, obviously, you know, we are looking at something also that we can't really totally see the entirety of and that we're not going to see. This is playing out slow. This is we're not going to have like final numbers on any of this until at soonest summer 2024. Right. Um, On the disenrollment, states don't even really track, you know, what happens to people when they get kicked off of Medicaid. Like some states do a little bit, but it's not something that we like can turn to a comprehensive pre-existing data set that we know will be collected of, okay, so we lost X many people from Medicaid in this year. How many of those people maintained a lack of insurance, right? Like we won't actually ever totally have exact numbers on where these people went, right? So like part of what I also want us to talk about here is that like when these processes start of redeterminations and people fall through the cracks and they get kicked off, whether they qualify or not, you know, they don't always get back on insurance, right? Most and of the time they don't. Yes. Yeah, most of right. the time they don't. And we don't have like a, a, a means set up to track what's going to happen to all of the people who are getting kicked off, right? So part of what we're up against here is this intense uh, pressure to quote unquote return to normal, right? Which in a very similar way to many of the other pandemic policies that we talk about on the show, like this is playing out in such an absurd and illogical manner, right? Like we are in the middle of an ongoing pandemic. We have taken away the ability to see that from a data picture with testing. We are taking away people's insurance. We are not looking to see what happens to them when that insurance gets taken away and we expect to be able to barrel forward, like no big deal, right? Part of why we're sort of looking at this right now also is because one of the big sort of points, Phil, as you said, that's that's like thrown um, up against this is like why it might not be such a big deal is that, oh, well, people are just going to get on marketplace plans, right? We've we've got yeah. these additional subsidies See the going commercials out. all the time on Freebie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like every other commercial on Freebie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm getting like uh, mailers, like lost Medicaid question mark, you know, sign up for this dual Medicaid, uh, Medicare Advantage thing and will like help facilitate your re-enrollment process. Like, you know, from my 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 Part D company, of course, who's still denying my medication uh, eight months later. And the thing that's like so 
kind of ridiculous here is that if you contrast the kind of like blase attitude of like, oh, this is fine. People are just going to end up like on these marketplace plans, like as if that process is super easy and straightforward and not also really kind of volatile in terms of like how often uh, we hear from listeners, for example, but how often it's also documented that people sort of sign up for their plans, they get their subsidy and then tax time, you know, comes around and it's recalculated and all of a sudden you owe all of this extra money or whatever, you know, the <laughs> the kind of just magical thinking of like, oh, all these people getting kicked off Medicaid are just going <sighs> to get on ACA plans and everything's going to be fine is also just sort of so counter to a lot of the sort of rhetoric of like why the ACA needed to make certain really important structural changes and ideological mm. changes to Medicaid itself. I mean, Bill, mm. I was revisiting uh, the book you co-wrote, Obamacare Wars, and like there's a quote from Biden uh, at the signing of the ACA at the beginning of one of the chapters. And he it's like he's like, oh, Mr. President, this is a big fucking deal. Right. Like the drumbeat, even during the um, primaries from the Biden team was also that they were going to do this like Medicaid expansion public option thing. And they're going to force um, a continuation and a fulfillment of like the promise of Medicaid expansion. Right. So the to, to pair that right with the just lack of urgency, lack of care can feel really jarring. Right. Until yeah. you sort of step back and look at like fundamentally, like what does Medicaid actually do as a kind of political economic force? Right. And Phil, you talked about this a little bit in your talk with Gabe and Saloni uh, for our socialism conference sessions. But, you know, part of what Medicaid really does is this is about making a market, but it's also about a really sort of strict and prescribed like financial relationship that has just massively shifted. And so maybe for a second, we could just talk about and revisit again, because I think it's worth refreshing, like exactly why this is happening, because I know a lot of people um, don't necessarily understand like the actual sort of nuts and bolts of like what what changed in that, that bipartisan budget deal in December that actually initiated this in terms of like mechanically what's going on? Um, because it's ultimately kind of being driven by cash flow, which is also part of what's making it worse, right? Because the these Medicaid departments are basically over the course of this year having their funding reduced from this small pandemic increase that happened. And that's also going to put additional pressures on the already understaffed teams of people who are doing these redeterminations. And and like there was a, a great piece of reporting um, from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette about, you know, just in Pennsylvania, what are some of the factors that are driving these errors and mistakes that have resulted in, for example, like the state of Pennsylvania being like, uh, we have no idea how many people were maybe uh, kicked off an error yet. We don't, we don't know how to count. We're going to figure that out. You know? Yeah. Um, but uh, what's her face? Uh the state Medicaid or the state DHS director is like, oh, but it, it could be 100,000, but that's the ceiling estimate. You know, people are reporting <laughs> right. that, but it's definitely not that. Right. Like, they love to, I don't know, all these state Medicaid officers love to talk about averages and how they're actually performing right. better than average. But um, they're also like... <laughs> You know, the reporting is like, well, one of the reasons why this is happening is rushing, right? One of the reasons they can't for say for sure is that there are not enough people working in these offices. There have not been enough people working in these offices for 
decades already. And now after managing record numbers of enrollees and total shifts and change in, in procedure for three years, you want them to do redeterminations for 94 million people, which is a volume of people they've never done it before. Like it is yeah. absolutely absurd to have imposed these kinds of like constraints on states and been like, here's like a good regular ass policy decision that's going to be great and have no downstream negative consequences or political ramifications later. Yeah. I mean, I think, OK, so like there are so many different like um, policy and accounting fictions that that functions solely as a means of avoiding blame. And the thing is, like, they're not just unique to Medicaid. They're they're ubiquitous, not just like in government, but just in the you know the world. So like, yeah, like we're doing better than average is an incredibly you like if you work for any organization at all, like uh, of any sort, like you are probably <laughs> familiar with your CEO or your CFO saying like we're better than average on some metric. <laughs> like it's like, <laughs> it's it's like a ubiquitous blame avoidance strategy. So there's like that. But the other thing is like there's this other bigger sort of accounting fiction and and you know program design fiction, which is like Medicaid is a federal that you just like this is in like paragraph one of any uh, like 101 background sheet on Medicaid. Like it's a federal state partnership, um, you know, and, you know, the states kick in money and the federal government kicks in money and states administer. But the federal government sets the kind of parameters about what states can do, blah, 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 blah. Um, but like this this ignore so and then so when like bad things happen, okay, obviously you can see where this is going. When bad things happen, and you know it, like the federal government gets blamed uh, for those bad things. It's like, well, you know, states do different things. Oh, by the way, here's a chart of the fifty states. See, some some are above average. Others <laughs> others are below average. And there are states that are average. And it's like, what? Okay, you the federal government finances Medicaid at something like 70% total financing comes from the federal government. Um, mm -hmm. There's like regulatory authority in the Code of Federal Regulations that says what the federal government is to do uh, about various things in Medicaid. The federal government expanded Medicaid drastically during, you know, the early months of the pandemic. Like it's shown that it basically has the muscle, not just regulatory, but fiscal muscle to manage a huge increase um, and then, you know, the way that the bipartisan budget deal at the end of uh, last year, at the end of 2022, beginning of calendar 23, um, basically said, look, we're eliminating all of these basically requirements to maintain continuous coverage. So now states, you can go back and do uh, whatever it is you were going to do in terms of, you know, redeterminations and to speak basically speed that process along, states are no longer going to get the bump in the FMAP rate, which is the federal matching rate, the rate at which the federal government matches state payments uh, that they got during the first few years of the, the pandemic. And so it's like, okay, number one, you now no longer are going to maintain continuous eligibility. And as if that weren't enough, we're no longer going to give you the money. So even if you wanted to, you're now, if you wanted, like, ostensibly, you could have a very generous eligibility policy, but now that's on you, right? Mm. Um, it, it's it's on your finances. And and the thing is, I mean, there were economists, you know, back in 2020, you know, that had papers out there basically saying, yes, you have to be very careful about when you do this, because when you when you roll this back, a lot of people are going to get disenrolled. And those disenrollments will have, I mean, 
for, from their perspective, those disenrollments are going to have huge ramifications for state economies. They're going to have huge ramifications for the healthcare system because it probably means that people are going to have health conditions that they don't seek care for and then they get worse and then they're going to you then go to the emergency room, okay? And the, at the same time, that the reduction in FMAP rate would be a hit to state economies itself because that rate helps buoy the health sector, which is, you know, often a, a pretty big sector of state economies. So, like, this is why I say don't talk to me about, okay, it's really not that bad because we're sort of going back to a baseline. It doesn't matter because the, the movement, the transition from you know, peak to trough, as it were, is the problem. I mean, that's the chaotic thing. And, and it's long face. Don't, but the other thing is like, don't pretend that it's not somehow a material deprivation just mm-hmm. because people had something that they weren't, you know, in your understanding, implicit or explicit of the policy, quote unquote, do uh, or, or eligible right. for or whatever um, that they, you know, really didn't deserve it is what you're saying in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Phil, I um I don't know. I kind of wanted to ask you to expand on this a little bit more from like, I don't know, I guess something of like a theoretical perspective. I thought that your talk at the socialism conference was really interesting about kind of like Medicaid, like the dynamic internal contradictions of Medicaid. And I'm just wondering if maybe we can talk about like, what is your take on why this is happening? Like, For many, many reasons, this unwinding process, you know, like the federal government can and should exercise its regulatory and like fiscal authority to like stop these redeterminations and stop this process. But that's but that's not what's happening. Like, do you have a read on why that is, I guess? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's a couple things. Um, So I'll I'll start with the sort of um, you want me to start with the complicated story or the, the easy one start with the complicated one. they're both true i think to some extent so like the i think the complicated side of it is the thing that i would expect you know because of the role that uh you know just looking at medicaid like fiscally and then how it affects the economy uh and all of this stuff like you would expect you know there to be like a sectoral level freak out about this huge unwinding uh, right. Like if, if Medicaid is really the thing, if Medicaid reimbursements are like propping up rural hospitals, critical access hospitals, um, if if they're the thing that is, you know, if the Medicaid market, right, is essentially how managed care companies are making a lot of their their nut, mm. um, like you would expect some sort of like sectoral freak out. But the thing is, I think that, you know, to some extent. So, yes, I, I think that probably behind closed doors, um, you know, hospital associations and uh managed care companies are freaking out. But the thing is, they've just sort of, I think, gotten used to a certain level of, of chaos and mm-hmm. they have options they can switch to. You know, I mean, managed care companies pretty uh, quickly started talking about the, you know, the marketplace uh, and the fact that reimbursement rates were better, um, you know, in the market, like that, that you know, they had better deals that they were sort of working on. Um, and then uh, to the extent that like there's a sectoral reaction among hospitals. Like, you know, I think hospitals are kind of internally divided, right? I don't, I don't think that like the hospital associations have a coherent 
like capital E, capital I economic interest, I think that you essentially have a very internally divided sector where you've got academic medical centers that are just like absolutely flush with cash. And then a lot of like basically struggling, you know, critical access hospitals that aren't and depend much more on Medicaid, but they're not, I mean, I don't think that they're being lobbied for by the same sort of like peak association or that they matter, or that they're, you know, whatever, that their voice matters in quite the same way. So I just think that like my initial gut was like, you know, there should be some sort of like economic like freak out that should prevent this from happening. Um, I think kind of that misunderstands a little bit how um, this all works on the ground. The the easier explanation I, I can think of is that like the Biden administration and I think Democrats writ large, uh, in order to deal with this problem, in order to like confront the specter of Medicaid unwinding, they would have had to have a different idea for a set of programmatic rules in place. They would have had to have Medicaid asterisk. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, so like in their logic, right, is like if Medicaid is Medicaid, you know, original flavor, and we now no longer have a public health emergency. And that was the thing that we were using to justify creating Medicaid asterisk, which was essentially like a Medicaid program where like whenever you got enrolled, whatever conditions led you to be enrolled, you then could not. The new policy was once once enrolled, regardless of what your income or assets were, you could then not be disenrolled. Right. And that clearly would not have been their policy in any world. But they also didn't have an alternative to that. Right. They didn't have an alternative, for example, that said, uh, "Okay, even like this is now where the American Academy of Pediatrics is, is like, okay, this is horrible. So here's the new Medicaid policy, Uh, automatic enrollment of our population kids at birth. Mm -hmm. Right. And then continuous enrollment through age 18. Right. Mm -hmm. And then merge chip and Medicaid. That's basically where AAP is. Biden administration didn't even really have that. Okay, so if you don't have something like that and basically you you believe that like Medicaid asterisk isn't a thing, um, then the only response you have to, you know, the, the prospect of unwinding is like gritting your teeth, avoiding blame and getting through it. Um, it like, because in order to have some solution to unwinding, you have to have a different articulation of what Medicaid eligibility rules should be, which they never had. It was never, I mean, like, and I can't even remember, B, you were talking about the campaign trail. That seems like 300,000 years ago. A million years Um, ago. You know, like, I, um, but, uh, you know, but I don't even think, it wasn't even a really systematic reworking of those eligibility rules from Biden on the campaign trail it was sort of like, we'll tweak sort of benefit amounts within the marketplace, um, the the kind of scale and how the kind of like cliffs work uh, within eligibility for like premium tax credits, maybe some, you know, tweaks to, to the Medicaid population to induce states that have not expanded yet to expand. Um, but I don't think that there was any rethinking like, hey, maybe we should just increase eligibility to like 500 percent of the federal poverty line. Like or 300 percent or four, you know, like there was no sense like that had been completely foreclosed. And once that's foreclosed, like politically, then what what were they going to do? You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. wondering, like, dare I say, I don't know, based on everything that you have been saying, Phil, I'm wondering, like, what impression I ought to have looking at this process as someone who is not really, you know, like an expert in federalism or health finance or health policy. Um, to what extent should I be looking at this process and understanding it 
as on the one hand, like, I don't know, somehow materially incentivized um, by like the political economy of health and all of the sort of contradictory dynamics that Medicaid kind of internalizes within it. And how much of it is like what I'm trying to say is like there there's some aspect of of moral economy here as well with this idea, you know, about about deservingness of Medicaid and, and going back to normal. Right. And, and sort of the inability to see what is a retrenchment in Medicaid coverage as a retrenchment in Medicaid coverage. So I guess a simpler way of saying this is that I feel like I see ideological and you know, kind of straightforwardly, well, not straightforwardly at all, very, you know, complicatedly material or, you know, economic or fiscal or political drivers of, of this process unfolding the way it is. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about how to, to connect those perspectives or like, what is the the yeah. most fruitful way of, of thinking about connecting those? Does that make okay. any sense at yeah. all? If I not, mean, we like, don't have to go let's, there. No, but I mean, I don't, let's, let's not, let's not even get too deep into the, you know, the muck of it. Right. So like, does the structure of Medicaid affect the, the this, this sort of political dynamic? Absolutely. Okay. Here's a different, imagine a different world. Okay. So you've got a program, it's still a program that, uh, you know, mainly, you know, is, is means tested like Medicaid. Um, but the states don't have any role. It's basically like the president's, you know, appointee and the, you know, federal bureaucracy, um, you know, and, and the same, everything else is the same. It's just administered, you know, only by the federal government. Now, uh, would the president still do blame avoid, try to do blame avoidance and avoid changing the program because he doesn't have really doesn't really, you know, want to deal with the moral. I You said moral economy earlier. It's like, I don't even, I think people just don't want to deal with what that question would be. Yeah. Because uh, they don't want to deal with the fact that we basically have this sort of imported and and polished like Victorianism, you know, in our <laughs> social policy. Right. But like, um, but okay, he would still do all of that stuff. But I think it would be harder to, I think it would be slightly at the very least, that'd be my modest projection. I think it would be slightly harder to, to avoid blame. There might be a little bit more attention on it, right? Because you wouldn't have this dissipative um, kind of like energy where it's like, well, right. it's sort of complicated and the states are doing things differently. I don't know. You got to go ask them, Jack, et cetera, um, sort of thing. And that, and that basically allows you further leverage to get away from the thing that's like, it would, it's just like, it's really preferable to just treat the structure of Medicaid as just like a technical condition that can't be operated around of health policy, right? That's the mm. thing. It's like, it's complicated. It's a technical feature of the environment and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, so it just has to operate as a constraint on however we evaluate policy. And if you can do all of that, you never have to reach like the moral economy questions or even the questions about like, what would a system, like leave aside any question about like who's deserving, who's not. It's like, what would a system that didn't like, you know, you know whipsaw people um, in, in, in their health coverage, like look like you never get to that, to that question. Um, and I think that that's, that's the thing is that that's like the, um, even, and I, I noticed this in the coverage, like there's all these sort of like policy shops that are, are sort of like monitoring, uh, unwinding and they're doing a really good job of it. And they're like, they're into all of the roots of what's going on in a way that like, I could never be, but like what, but what do they talk about is like the solution is like, well, I don't know, do the unwinding better. You know, like make it la like, you know, the the whole issue of like ex parte renewals 
Um, and like maybe there's like a more generous way. B, you've been like looking at what what's what's been discussed at, at the uh, Medicare and Chip Payment Access Payment and Access Advisory Commission. What's what's going on there? Oh my gosh, it's a it's such a cacophony of different things just being thrown at the wall. I mean, there's chaos, there's fucking frustration from state administrators that even some of the like ways that recent changes to data reporting requirements have even sort of given the means for this reporting on what's been going on to happen in the first place. Like there's frustration that this is something that's not happening like more privately, um, which I think probably speaks to some of the outrage and pressure that is happening as a result of like local organizing against this, which I know there is there's a lot of that actually going on. Um, And the thing that's just kind of really, I think, scary (laughs) is to see how little is being learned from the shit that we know has already happened, right? So like one of the things that's been a very big problem is that many of these states, in order to save time and save on labor, are employing these like automated systems. And so they'll have sometimes, you know, whether it's an algorithm to sort through things or it's a process of auto renewal, it really is different from state to state. Um, So some of the states so far have reported that those tools have really fucked up. And yet you see state administrators proposing more tools and being like, well, what if we started doing AI chatbots? What if we did AI this? What if we did AI that? And rather than being like really concerned about AI making this problem worse, their concern and discussion is really over like, how would that look? Right. Like, how is that going to make people more mad at them? And I think that that that's sort of what you're saying. And what's so important to underline is that the avoidance of accountability is obviously a huge, huge uh, priority. Right. The the kind of pressure that I think states are feeling is a kind of like we're being fucked on both ends and blamed for something that is a position we're sort of being forced into. And so there's a kind of like I think um, magical solutionism where everybody's looking for the silver bullet to make this go away. And there's a lot of talk of equity, but it's just really hollow, right? Like it's just very hollow, but especially when you see, uh, you know, we have some of the material effects of like this happening already out in the world, right? Um, There are some terrible stories that I've heard from our own listeners about their experience getting kicked off of of Medicaid um, in the last couple of months. There uh, is a story in some of the Kaiser reporting of a disability advocate, Patrick Guyton, who was dying of pneumonia in a Tennessee hospital. And, you know, as he was in the hospital, his family was fighting Medicaid. And, you know, these are people who had been fighting Medicaid for Patrick's whole life because he'd been on Medicaid since he was a child. And so they're well known to the Tennessee State Medicaid Agency because they are literally the people who push them to include like a pediatric um critical care provision. They're the people who push them to include traumatic brain injury, uh, you know, specialty care in ten- in ten care, the Tennessee Medicaid um, program. And yet this person who has been on Medicaid for 30 years, who is part of the history <laughs> of the Medicaid agency in Tennessee, receives like a an automated letter that in court filings, 10 care is like, oh, well, it was it was sent in error. It was a mistake. Um, they should have never received 
the letter, his coverage was never terminated. But nevertheless, for the last month and a half before he died, his family was dealing with fighting Medicaid to retain his coverage, right? And like these kinds of, of ways that administrative burdens take from people in terms of time, in terms of you know, the way this like sort of shapes your life also is something that is really absent from from the discussions. When you're talking about equity uh, at this sort of uh, level of a, a bunch of state administrators gathered around the table trying to figure out what to do, what they're really concerned with is like, you know, the perception of this happening inequitably, not the perception of this happening at all. And I think that comes out really clearly. I think, you know, we we know that that. <laughs> State Medicaid agencies and, and Medicaid programs in general are often known for being organizations that prioritize cost above all else. And I think what you know we're really kind of seeing is that 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 sort of affects the ethic and the the sort of moral compass with which people are approaching this, right? Like it is not the same kind of like moral framework that we might have. It is a like, how do we make this go away? And how do we make this go smooth? Um, and the idea of of stopping it is treated like an impossibility because there is, I think, a very firm belief that no one is going to be stepping in to turn off the sundowning of this additional subsidy. And that it seems like they do not expect CMS and HHS to really actually fully back them up in, in either capacity, whether forcing them to stop. And there, and there does seem to be like uh, also a lot of misery from the people in these jobs, like who don't enjoy doing this shit. Right. And they don't also seem to believe in a reality where they will ever have the opportunity to not do this, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I at one level you can understand like there's some people who their charge is Assume that there will be no legislative changes to this program. Assume that you must administer it as is. And then within that parameter, make it the least bad possible, right? You know, do the least suffering possible within that constraint. Okay. If that's your job and, and, and these are the solutions you're coming up with, you know, I get it. Like, I, I, I totally, I get it. However, right, there is an element here where it's like the, the program has created a failed approach to giving people healthcare because we can expand, demonstrate that we can expand and then deprive uh, for reasons that, you know, like people cross a sort of arbitrary threshold. And then, you know, the argument with the ACA is like, well, then they can go like seek another, um, you know, form of, of individual like marketplace care, which is, you know, looking at what happens with the, the churn data, it's like, if that's if that's happening. if that's the solution, then why isn't that happening? Right. Right. Um, like, is, is do you think that there could be something wrong with it? And the answer is like, there, yes, there obviously is. So for people whose whose job it is, you know, is not just like administering the programs, but is instead any kind of political leadership at all, like at any level. The idea that you can't take this situation, tee it up as something like this is a problem Pe because, you know, uh, people are being disenrolled. Their lives are becoming more miserable. And what's happening is like because of the blame of one structure, it means that people who have power are not talking about it with their constituents to a great degree. Now, there have been some like strongly worded letters from like members of the Senate basically telling CMS to like look into some of these problems, et cetera. And I'm sure that there's some like retail politicking, you know, going on around it. But like in general, 
it is not like seen as like this is a situation that is immiserating people and we have to rectify it. It's like, oh, you're it's like the equivalent of like Clippy. Like it seems like you're being yeah. deprived of an essential social resource. Would you like some help with that? Would you like to like go to a marketplace plan? It like it is just a profoundly, profoundly alienating and I, I don't know, disempowering um experience. And like that that's the problem is like, you know, you cannot let the kind of the mindset of bureaucracy determine or dictate or, or even like policy analysis to like determine or dictate what you do as, as a means of like political leadership. Like that is that is a failed approach to like, you know, dealing with this program. Like you have to admit that the entire structure that we've set up is it's bankrupt because you can see what's happening. Mm hmm. Well, and I think the thing that's really important to also bring back in here is that we need to be real that part of why this is happening is that it also looks pretty bad to have 94 million people on the insurance of last resort that is a poverty program, right? Um, it's not necessarily something to be super proud of, right? This is not necessarily a thing that politicians want to embrace, right? And part of what I think we're up against is also that this is very much about putting an end cap, forcing an end cap on pandemic time, right? The psychological barrier of like, well, if we give them something, we will have to take it away at some point was thrown out from the very beginning, as you were saying, Phil, like this was a, a a point that the people implementing this were forced to consider, right? So it's always been on the horizon. That's part of why we've been talking about it for fucking years, even though this is only seven months into the process. But but we're also we're also really up against a very difficult pressure, right? Which is that this is wrapped up in other pandemic pressures and other pressures towards um, the sort of impulse to uh, privatize COVID, to decenter it from, from being like a very public um, central issue and to decenter it from a position of political leverage, right? And we're seeing that across the board. I know I've been mentioning this episode so much recently, but it's like very top of mind, like the conversation we had with, with Nate uh, Holdren most recently about the California State Supreme Court decision that, you know, business leaders had been watching these cases on, on quote unquote, take home COVID for years, right? Like, are we going to have to start socking away money for the potential for all these liability litigations if we're sort of making people sick through the conditions of their work and then they're bringing COVID home and getting people sick, you know, and they used, you know, a asbestos regulation to pull like a paranoid um, just absolutely bunk legal argument out of their ass and essentially shut down an entire line of recourse and defense for, um, you know, basically forced exposure and, and forced injury as a result of just the base level, quote unquote, pervasiveness of COVID. So this is kind of like, it's difficult because we are in this position where for years, the sort of preparation for the, the production of the end of the pandemic involved a discussion around there being a moment when the money spigot was going to turn off and the cash machine was going to stop going burr and that we all had to start getting ready to sort of tighten up and get ready for returning to, you know, this funding sort of being sundowned across the board. And, and one of the things we've been pushing and talking about over and over is that, you know, this is all happening against the backdrop of 
a promise of no disease that is not real, right? The idea that, that COVID's fine and no big deal anymore. And, and that doesn't actually hold true up against reality. But, you know, what is, is frustrating is that, you know, when you understand, okay, like Medicaid as a kind of economic function, right, has all of these benefits to state economies. You know, there's so much money that flows through Medicaid and that, like, ultimately people having health care is like, a good thing for bosses. Like, you know, Phil, we've talked about your talk at the socialism conference panel, Phil, but like you make the point in that also of, of that's, I think, important to bring in here, which is like Medicaid subsidizes low-wage labor, right? Medicaid keeps workers healthy. It uh, keeps wages down. It doesn't give workers um, economic mobility. And when you know all about all this money that can be made, right, through Medicaid, all the private wealth that can be grown, um, the idea that Medicaid is often thought about as this way of like giving employers an edge and that some of the ways that Medicaid expansion was sold was like, oh, well, this is a way to make, um, you know, small businesses in your state more competitive as if you buy into Medicaid expansion. So it, it really just kind of also lays bare the fact that even when you know all of this money can be made through Medicaid, right, all this wealth can be built, looking at the unwinding allows us to be really clear about the fact that the hatred of poor people overwhelms even the desire to build wealth because Medicaid ultimately is part of the ideology of welfare reform that is so part of the United States just sort of ethos, right? Like this is a program that has always been um, contested in whatever form that it existed because Medicaid isn't the first iteration of this type of program, right? Um, and it's interesting actually to think about all of the different evolutions that Medicaid went through before it became Medicaid and how it was actually more of a kind of incidental part of the Medicare bill rather than being the kind of centerpiece that we think about it relative to actually kind of like the static nature of the program, even though it's been highly variable and experimental and we've seen all, all these block grants and tweaking and stuff. It's also been very slow to change since the 60s and we haven't seen a lot of new ideas since, you know, when Biden was running, as we were talking about, it feels like a million years ago, but he was talking about doing a public option through a Medicaid expansion um, that was going to run at a federal level so that people who lived in states that refused to do Medicaid buy-in could buy into Medicaid like individually at a federal level. And it was going to be this like way of like strapping some of Medicare's bargaining power onto Medicaid. And he was talking about, oh, well, maybe we're going to use Medicaid um, to bargain for drug prices to bring, you know, like all this sort of creativity, all this mention and discussion of the public option, right? And and Medicaid as a kind of experimental container for that was like something that they they really leaned on and talked about a lot. And if you look at, you know, what Biden has said since he's been elected, first of all, he has not said public option or, uh, you know, anything like public insurance, uh, public health insurance since he was elected. Um, but you can tell how this is also just like a really popular idea that Democrats use as a carrot and they use healthcare and healthcare access as this really disingenuous sort of way of reassuring people that they are the be benevolent party who is here with empathy and who's here to take care of you, right? And and when we see, um, you know, those promises held up against what we've been living through in terms of the unwinding, the sheer lack of care for the urgency of the situation that we have seen, the fact that, you know, Biden hasn't mentioned the unwinding once, right? Like these are really frustrating uh, contradictions 
instructions to hold up next to each other because they absolutely disprove the kind of idea that I think comforts so many people that, you know, the state is here as some sort of uber, you know, benevolent force that's here to take care of us and not here as as a manager of capitalism, as a manager um, and policer, you know, of markets. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that you're trying to explain the stability of this is, you know, is, you know, why this program has sort of been like averse to not not the expansion uh, per se, like it's it has expanded, but but like a more radical reimagining uh, of it or even more dramatic kind of reform is that like, okay, you know, over the last four decades, you've invited market actors um, in the door. This is, it's now a huge source of, of revenue in the private sector. And, you know, that revenue, I, at least some chunk of it's hard to quantify is premised on the fact that it's really hard to figure out, um, you know, it's really hard to like hold these companies accountable. And one reason for that is the whole design of, of Medicaid makes that hard. So, so like what you've done is you've created a really, really strong um, opposition army uh, with lots of money and also a lot of covered lives hanging in the balance or that they can claim or hang in the balance. Um, and so, I mean, th- that those are obviously preposterous um, threats, but I think that they, they end up working as like an effective uh, political break. And you would think like this is a moment where the curtain between like the policy world we think exists and the policy world that actually exists is at mm. its thinnest. Yes. It's been yes. worn down. Uh-huh. Right. And you can, you can really begin to glimpse through the, you know, Peer through, through the what's veil. Le- <laughs> left of the veil, what's left of the fabric uh, to see how it actually works. And, and, but I think the problem, right, is that like the right now, I, to the extent that that's even happening, um, it, it's, you know, you have to dig for it a little bit, but you can simply look you know what I like? You can only sit back and look. That's what you can do. And like in the absence of some sort of like political like idea or leadership around, um, okay, there's what the world actually looks like. How do we bring it back so it, 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 it conforms more to what we think it is like on this side of the, the veil or the mirror or whatever mm-hmm. metaphor you want to use? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, all you have to do is to say, wow, that is, that is I'm going to move on and hope that the curtain gets thicker. You know, the further I walk, right? Because that's uh, ugly, and I don't want to look at that anymore. It's mm. so interesting that you say this because I just wrote down in my notes <laughs> as we were going through, like, you know, what's going on is so out of step with with what we tell ourselves, um, or like how we understand and are like told to understand this. And I really appreciated in your socialism conference talk. I've referenced this thing like three times now. Everyone should just go back and listen to it. But I really appreciated in your your socialism talk, Phil, how you put, I think, a lot of care into un or I guess picking apart or disarticulating kind of the the conventional wisdom story about what's going on here with the unwinding, which I do feel corresponds to sort of like a pre-pandemic sort of understanding of the state's role in in healthcare and stuff like this, um, but you kind of pick apart this this idea that it's you know simply just neoliberalism, you know, and and states wanting to balance their their budgets and stuff like that. Perhaps it's a good moment for us to talk about some of the I don't know updates on what's going on um, in terms of like what is actually being done to slow this down because as we've been talking about this is a slow moving process 
it's happening disjointedly. It's difficult to see state by state. But there are these uh, regular meetings that happen, these MACPAC meetings that, that we were talking about the minutes of earlier. And, you know, there has been discussion for a number of months now on trying to figure out how to slow things down and kind of figure out what's going on. They want to, like, look under the hood and see, like, how they're fucking up so bad and try and, like, fuck up a little bit quieter and less bad is kind of the vibe. But, you know, we had the Biden administration at the end of August send uh, another uh, strongly worded letter to states telling them, you know, you've got to reinstate coverage for some of these people who have been kicked off unceremoniously um, for procedural reasons, unnecessarily kicked off of health insurance. You have some states, you know, reinstating um, people's coverage, 10,000, 15,000 people at a time, which is great. You have some states doing um, delays and, and pauses, but there is not a really kind of unified effort coming from CMS and HHS to intervene. And what's interesting is that actually you do have federal lawmakers from various states like Georgia, like writing CMS and HHS letters, basically begging them to do something, right? And you still have this real reluctance for there to be a coordinated, like, okay, everybody pump the brakes, like stop right now. And that's something that we've talked about as possible. And there is a lot of organizing that's going around, as I mentioned. Um, the nonviolent Medicaid army has, uh, they just did a, a week of action. They've been organizing on the ground in Pennsylvania, Texas, Wisconsin, Wyoming, Indiana, Illinois, Georgia, Maryland, New York, and Vermont. Um, you have stuff working through the courts, like in Tennessee, people who are getting kicked off of 10 care um, are getting added onto this class action lawsuit. In Florida, we have like a civil rights complaint saying that, you know, the Florida redetermination process is explicitly racist, trying to keep black people, indigenous people, Latino people from Medicaid uh, use. You also have um, a lawsuit going on in Florida as well that's seeking to stop and pause their redetermination process. But ultimately, like what I'm kind of getting at here is that we have talked about briefly in the past there being um, more levers that could be pushed right now from the federal regulatory end that could actually sort of stem some of the flow of the bleeding. Obviously, this would require making a decision moving forward about what the fuck we want Medicaid to be for and how that's going to sort of work in terms of a funding model. But Phil, in the past, you've talked about there being um, some sort of immediate moves that are just being uh, not taken here that are things that like absolutely maybe those folks who are doing that on the ground organizing would definitely appreciate hearing about for the purposes of being able to like incorporate into any state level demands that they're making. Well, I mean, so I, you know, I don't profess to be a, you know, a, an expert on all of the the sort of gory details of you know, 42 code of federal regulations, uh, <laughs> which is where all the sort of Medicaid law and policy is uh, is contained uh, at the federal level. But, you know, I guess one positive development, something to think about building on, like in the last few months is CMS has, you know, under pressure uh, from a variety of kind of sources uh, that basically have illustrated how states are just wantonly disenrolling people for procedural reasons. They basically told states, um, I think about 30 of them um, at this point, that they need to uh, pause uh, the redetermination process because they're not following some aspects of the federal regulations about how you do this process. So that that's resulted in some, you know, I guess you could say positive changes. But I think one 
way of thinking about the like the demand is like has CMS really reviewed the full scope of its legal uh, authority here to shut down um, these redetermination processes? Like, um, I don't know even how to evaluate whether or not it has. Uh, but I would guess that like what you know, one way of thinking about this is like you are through your actions creating emergency situations in state governments, right? Some of that, those emergencies are, be, are being caused by the way that states are choosing to interpret what they're allowed to do and they're being ex- extremely aggressive. But the other thing is like part of the emergency is like the fact that, uh, you know, we're forcing states to do this a- at all and states are in a variety of different kind of conditions to respond to it. And so it, you know, it might be the case that like CMS hasn't investigated the full scope of, of its authority. I mean, that's, and, and so like one demand would be like, this is an emergency, like act like it, right? It, it can't be the case that this many people uh, have to be disenrolled and you have to exercise every, every available authority to make sure that that's not, uh, that's not happening. Um, to some extent, that's like a means to an end because the real problem here. Uh, isn't just like with the details and specifics of the program. It's the basic structure. Um, it's the ba- basic structure that causes people to be disenrolled. And so like, this is why I think you can see, again, it's this horribly like fragmented way in which like medical advocacy works. But like, you can basically see physicians groups and patient groups that, that deal with a specific population. They're like, well, look, it sh- Medicaid should be like automatic for this population, right? Um, like we need more categorical eligibility for this population. And it's like, okay, you're, you get the basic, you get the basic thrust of it, which is like, we need a completely different program, but you haven't like, but the thing is like focusing on one population is part of the problem. Um, it's always, then it just becomes easier and easier to like carve up the rest. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to d- sort of divide the rest. So I think it's like the demand, and this would make things a lot easier is, I, you know, and again, this is not my preferred policy, but if you want to make, uh, you know, a demand to like, just change Medicaid, like, I don't know, increase eligibility to 500% of FPL, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's not where you would like end the demand, but it's like, this would be like a means to an end, of course, because the, the bigger end is to say, look, this system has to be dismantled and replaced with something that's actually going to guarantee that people have continuous healthcare coverage. Like, mm-hmm. h- how is it possible that like we're now in a world where it's like, you know what? It's okay if you don't have continuous healthcare coverage. And they get around it by changing the meaning of the word continuous. Like, well, <laughs> well, if you can switch onto a marketplace plan, isn't that like continuous? And the answer is like, no, it's no, not. It's not. Because that plan covers different providers. It might cover them at different rates. It might cover different levels of service. It's going to charge you uh, as opposed to having it being, you know, more or less free at point of service. So, like, that's not what you would call continuous coverage. But I think, like, focusing on the language of continuous coverage as, like, a basic demand or or a way of highlighting that, like, in the United States, we have accepted as a normal fact of life that at some point during the year or when you have a changing, like, life event or you lose your job or you... Uh, make a little bit more money, um, you get a little bit of a better job, but they still don't have health insurance or you're working two jobs and you know you still don't have health insurance, um, that we're just going to tolerate the idea that you can be cut off from your, <laughs> yeah, like regular patterns of care. I mean, talk to anybody who, you know, has, has considered like leaving their job, um, you know, for a different one or for, you know, just because they, I don't know, want to reevaluate what they're doing uh, with their career. Democracy Now! November 3rd, 2023. For more-
more, we're joined by Josh Paul, the State Department official who resigned last month in protest of Biden's push to increase arms sales to Israel amidst its siege on Gaza. What kind of response uh, was there to your resignation? Uh, people have reached out to me to say, uh, you know, we, we fully agree with you. Uh, you know, obviously, everyone has their own personal circumstances. Uh, you know, I think if we had uh, universal health care, it would make it a bit easier for people to stand up on principle. Uh, I myself am, you know, trying to figure out what I do next on health care. But they're terrified of losing. You know, this is like a gut level uh, thing that actually prevents people from, you know, taking different kinds of, of work. And I think that that this sort of demand, like this should not be a question, is, is maybe a helpful way of framing the, the thing that's like at the root of the problem. Well, and I think, you know, trying to really force the frame that this is an emergency, um, that this is like a this is a public health emergency in many ways, too. And that the idea of continuity, right, um, is a specific thing that needs to mean something specific. And that that is like a, a pledge that, you know, they need to be held to. And that's the emergency. I think part of what we also need to do in terms of like ideology work, right, is that some of the things that are really important to understand about Medicaid is that it was always very vague and it was always um, about very competing ideas. But the, one of the biggest things that Medicaid did was actually sort of change and update um the meaning of medical indigence. And that's something that's also has been updated and changed as Medicaid has evolved. And and some of the ideas of like who's deserving and things like that that are wrapped up in Medicaid um, have actually always been very fluid. And there's a way to think about how we can use Medicaid and our real understanding of how Medicaid fits into the economy to push back on the idea that Medicaid is subject to this kind of free rider problem, right? Because then if a third of the country is on Medicaid, then a third of the country is not, you know, pulling their economic weight, so to speak. And so part of what's going on here is that there are so many people who approach Medicaid with this like welfare free rider stigma in mind. And that's one of the things that I think we're also up against and why there's no real great sense of urgency, because ultimately that kind of fear that the sort of vulnerable, the burdens are going to overwhelm the working people actually bringing in that tax revenue and what's going to happen to that balance is so much a part of like the paranoia that in this equation becomes the bigger problem to people than yes. the fact that there are millions That's of people losing their insurance. It's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about these, dis these procedural disenrollments, like the, um, disenrollments that are happening as part of the kind of unwinding itself. But there, I think is some level of churn or some level of disenrollment that is happening as a result of states just going back to normal. And like my example for thinking about this is always kind of like perinatal epidemiology because that's, you know, what my my training is in and because Medicaid is such a huge payer for perinatal care in the country. You know, Medicaid covers half of all births uh, in the United States. It might even be more than that. I mean, I think that stat is a few years old. Um, let me back up a second. One of the big priorities for sort of birth justice advocates nationally is trying to advocate for extending the Medicaid pregnancy labor and delivery coverage for up to one year postpartum, like after giving after giving birth. Currently, the federal minimum is 60 days postpartum, which is like not that much time. That's like two months. 
And in states that haven't expanded Medicaid, they can drop people that have recently given birth after after 60 days. So as part of this going back to normal, you know, during the public health emergency dates, you know, Medicaid also had to pause, you know, that that amount of churn, right? Like you were just continuously enrolled in Medicaid kind of no matter what. And you could stay on, you know, for, for a long time after you gave birth. And someone someone that I actually know, one of my colleagues um, from Brown published a paper. I just found it. Um, looked at some survey data and found that over, you know, between 2020 and 2021, respondents to the survey that were covered by Medicaid, they reported like, I don't know, like 10% more of them reported having consistent coverage over this year. Um, And fewer respondents reported like Medicaid to uninsurance churn, like getting kicked off Medicaid um, and becoming uninsured, uh, which you know, that that churn, that level of churn among these respondents, it was like 13 percent at the beginning of 2020, and it was less than 5 percent in 2021. So just in this like kind of area of of, you know, reproductive and perinatal health, the pause in redeterminations had a huge public health effect in keeping people covered um, during this kind of like critical period. You know, postpartum Medicaid loss is a huge, huge, huge problem. And we know that it's associated with all sorts of bad things, like 63% of um, pregnancy, oh, now I can't remember the difference between pregnancy-related and pregnancy-associated deaths, but um, 63% of deaths related to pregnancy actually happen postpartum. And I've been really concerned about this because, you know, this, this insurance churn postpartum is such a huge public health issue to begin with, and now with these eligibility determinations being restarted, a lot of people are going to lose their coverage postpartum. Like we know this happens. This is well documented in the literature. And I've been thinking in particular, like perhaps just as an example, um, I've been thinking in particular about Texas, um, which is, you know, has the highest like uninsurance rate in the country uh, for people of, of reproductive age, which also has a very restrictive abortion ban in place right now. Um, you know, the infant mortality rate following the Dobbs decision, I think Texas is, is the highest in the country. But, you know, this has reversed, you know, like a, a decade, more than a decade of progress in infant mortality. You know, like I think something like 22% of infant deaths in 2022 in Texas were related to severe congenital anomalies because abortion is is basically illegal, you know, and, and people are being forced to carry unviable pregnancies. Um, and they're being forced to do it in the context first of Medicaid non-expansion, right? So like their postpartum coverage shuts off 60 days postpartum, basically guaranteeing some churn, basically guaranteeing that a lot of these people will become uninsured. And now compounding that, um, is this process of Medicaid unwinding, which is going to, you know, create, I mean, it's already creating a situation of of churn um, and chaos. And it's just really, I'm struggling to even say anything smart about it because it is just such a fucked up and regrettable situation. But like, I don't think that I don't know. I'm not even sure what I really want to say. I'm I'm kind of at a loss for words about it for like the first time ever in the history of my life. Um, it's just a really and like and I mean this is just one this is just one very very particular area. Like I'm just talking about one very very particular state, and I am like afraid. You know, I feel afraid like in my body talking about this. Um, 
for what this is going to mean for um, pregnancy care. I think like, you know, 70% or something of the disenrollments in Texas have been children. I think it's been a pretty high proportion um, nation nationwide. Um, but I just, I, I'm not sure that people realize like what a dire situation this sets up for, for actual public health. And I am not really sure, like we were talking about formulating demands around this. I think that there is the potential to like link some of these demands to, you know, these, these like public health indicators and public health goals. Um, but I am not entirely sure how to do that. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if anyone's listening to this and can think of um, some strategies to sort of like blend, you know, organizing around the unwinding with organizing around reproductive justice. Well, I mean, fundamentally, one of the biggest problems with Medicaid is that the population on it is some of the people with the least time and resources to organize and who right. have to organize for so many different things. Um, you know, I know that friends who do a lot of work on Medicaid periodically will have to pause their Medicaid organizing to deal with their own Medicaid redetermination crap sometimes for years if that gets challenged. And so, you know, the I mean, it, it ultimately like as many of these conversations come down to on the death panel, I think it's ultimately a question of like, what do we owe each other and um, not wanting to talk about that? Because as it stands, you know, I well, I appreciate that people are questioning our assertion that this is a really big deal because everyone should feel welcome to question anything we assert. I also am like, what is making you try and minimize this? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you should think about that for a second. You know, think about what it is in you right now that makes you want to make this not a big deal because... It's very hard to always be up against those kind of normalizing pressures of, of talking about health policy, right? Which is we're always pushed to the cost. We're always pushed to these these arguments of, of uh, scale and capacity and distribution. And fundamentally, like what we know is that rural people are being fucked over and abandoned by the unwinding, probably more so than anyone else. I mean, prior to the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there were so many examples of what exactly is going on here that were happening to rural Medicaid populations, where you have, you know, folks' redetermination packages being sent to uh, a horse pasture instead of their house. You know, mm -hmm. they live like 600 miles north of Nashville. They run a farm, you know, sent to an abandoned field that used to be a different farm, you know, 35 miles away, twice. And then, you know, the child has a medical emergency, and now that family is on the hook for a $100,000 hospital bill, right? Or the difficult decision of not taking the child to the hospital. And all of the fucking psychological and economic consequences living with that decision for the rest of your life brings, because it's not like any of the difficult decisions that people have to make when they're under the kinds of pressures that the unwinding is putting on people that 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 misery and that suffering ends in that moment in time right like we carry that shit with us forever and that's that's really ultimately why this is so urgent you know we can talk about scale all we want but like the idea of like that happening to one person yeah it's outrageous should keep you up at night you know what i mean we if this is this is a question of provisioning this is a question of desire to 
to provide access to care. And I think it really should be a lesson for anyone who may have been convinced by the decades of rhetoric you've seen from Democrats that their baseline desire is to continue to just incrementally always, you know, improve that on insurance rate because they have an opportunity to cement and make permanent a like historic increase. They are out there celebrating the historically low on insurance rates. And this is going to fuck that up for them. And we have, I think that's part of like what the task is that's right now. That's a very good point. You know, that's they've, they've, they've held that out as a metric, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as the metric. Um, it's like, we can tolerate anything else except, you know, there should be a monotonic, you know, increase towards, you know, whatever leave leave under insurance aside pretend don't don't look at the you know uh (laughs) erisa plan behind the wall um (laughs) but the um but yeah i think that that's that's a really good um uh a very very good way of 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 framing it i mean but the other thing the other way of framing it is i think you do have to attack this this idea this basically um you know there are authors who do like iglesias is like classic for this but it's like the uh you know, well, things are better now, you know, and it's like, I don't live in history, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, going back to a baseline in terms of insurance rate that is higher than it was in 1993 is not what I would consider. Like, that is not a metric of like policy success, enrolling <laughs> lots of like reducing. OK, here's another example that clarifies even more, you know, pass some policies that, that drastically reduce child poverty and then repeal them and child poverty goes back up uh, to it. Like that's, I mean, okay. So you, what you did is you demonstrated that you could do a thing. The state has the power, resources, time, energy, you know, maybe even interest in doing this. Like there were materially, you know, very, very clear, tangible benefits. And then you said, Nope, never mind. Let's forget that. Um, that doesn't mean like just because like child poverty on the whole might be lower today than it was, you know, I don't know, 40 years ago. Like, that's not I, like what motivates you to tweak the baseline in such a way that whatever we happen to be doing right now is good. Like that, that is that is a really specific choice that emanates from a deeply reactionary philosophy that basically says whatever we are doing right now, that is the good society. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah, that's it's a very funny it's a very funny uh, thing, especially when progressives do it. That's that's fun. Mm. Better things aren't possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's our notion of progress. Um, imagine that you go back in time and you're progressing asymptotically to this very point in history. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To the optimal. I always love that about like the the Democrats in general is like the way they talk about this, like, oh, there's some optimal level of uninsurance, you know? And like, I believe, you know, that with the right technical fixes, you know, or whatever the fuck, like eventually we can get to it. And it's like, what? Well, no, it's funny. I always do this thing where I present like a problem to my students. I'm like, okay, the problem is like, you know, we want to reduce the amount of non-diverted uh, waste in like a city. Mm. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so, so choose a target, like choose a criteria. I don't tell them anything else. I'm like, that's what we want to do. Like choose a target. Uh, we're currently 60% of our waste is undiverted. Um, and they're like, well, you know, a, a quite natural answer. Like in this whole milieu, it is per, it, it makes a lot of sense for students to say like, well, we want to get down to 40%. 
Um, <laughs> and I ask them like, why? And they're like, well, because it's, you know, it's less, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's less than 60. It's below 50. That sounds good. And I, this is not, by the way, no criticism by students here. Like this is very much the milieu that we're in. It's like, well, we moved the Delta. Like we, 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 we made a Delta of like 20% and, um, you know, it, Going beyond that, oh, that seems like aggressive. And then you look at what cities' goals are, and it's like zero un- undiverted waste by like 2035 or something like that. It's like you can be more aggressive with these things. Like you don't like it, there's just a very um, I think it's just like very baked into like the culture of cons- consultancy that like you want to uh, make mo- that, that your goals should be modest. Like that that's a good mm-hmm. thing because, it, you know, in the world of like clients and contracts, like over you know, over delivering on an under promise is like, you know, perhaps even a rational thing. But the point is like, we're not in that. Like, that's not yeah. actually the set of problems mm-hmm. that we're dealing yep. with. The goal is not to be hired again. Like the, like when you're dealing with these like broader societal goals, it mm-hmm. is to like solve mm-hmm. the problem to hit right. the target. And that's why, you know, I, I get why that makes sense. However, like, there is a possibility, and in fact, it is not at all unreasonable that you could mitigate this thing 100%. Doesn't mean that other problems aren't going to come up in some way, but like, Free you know. Free your mind. O- and your ass like, <laughs> Right, exactly, right? It's mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think the other thing here that, that is really important is that, that this is also like coming down to some like almost like superstitions about labor discipline that get enacted um, on people's bodies through health policy, right? Like part of the paranoia for, you know, proposing something too generous with regard to health care for the poor is that you're going to goad people into not working, right? You know, for months we've been bombarded with this like, you know, people can't find any employees pandemic reporting. The other day, I saw three pieces that were like, people won't quit. They're staying in these jobs for too long and they were hired at too high a wage and that's over now and they just won't leave. You know, it's the same kind of idea of like there needing to be um, a minimum amount of people at all times who are unemployed that we can't have something like, you know, a, an idea of like a jobs guarantee or full employment because then, you know, where would the bottom be? And this is like, you know, Marta Russell's money model of disability, right? That disabled people and the imposed poverty on people with disability benefits is part of the threat of um, putting up with working conditions that might make you sick because you, if you want to bet on yourself, you know, surviving those odds, it's better than the guarantee of poverty that comes with disability, right? And it's it's like the example of the from the statute of laborers that we talk about in health communism, where you know they're debating um, pensions for the mad. Would it be cheaper to like pay people to keep their mad relatives at home? versus um, building up like, you know, these regional hospital and and almshouses and asylums. And they determine, well, if we did that, you know, we would be paying the families of mad people more money than laborers would be getting. Right. So we can't do that. What I love about publishing a book is that people read a story and they're like, I know another one of those. And so I've got like five more examples that folks have sent me of that same exact negotiation happening in the context of different era uh, statute of laborers, even down to like there being a really great one from 1850 where the poor law commissioners 
were like refusing to approve this diet that had been proposed for all of the workhouses um, in England by saying, you know, this diet is is like too rich for the people at the workhouses. It's like going to make them sick. Um, and if we gave you know, these paupers, all this food, they would be eating better than the laborers. So you would have, you know, an incentive to go to the work camp to get better food. So we can't feed them this food because then they'll have no reason to, you know, go out and seek labor so they can feed their families because just they can all become, you know, alms taking uh, leeches on the you know, the crowd. Like this is this is a kind of eternal paranoia that, you know, like death panel as a political project is trying to fuck up in some ways. But, you know, we see this over and over as this uh, justification that's that's treated very seriously. I mean, I'm joking now, but it's treated very seriously and literally and taken as um, a, a very necessary consideration within like policy wonk world from people like Matt Iglesias. But also when when folks are on the table bargaining over implementation after a law has been passed. I mean, a great historical example of this is also, you know, the Section 504 protests and negotiations over implementation and, and how that went, you know, that paranoia about um, imbalance in markets, imbalance in the population, imbalance in the body politic, and losing this kind of faux edge that we think we have on labor discipline through forced poverty, through deprivation, is part of like what is the ideology that I think also uh, deprioritizes this entire thing and tries to hide the crisis that it, it really ultimately is. I have a lot to say about almshouses and workhouses in Victorian England and sanitation movement and stuff, but not not for today. <laughs> Sounds like we've got another episode in the works. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to leave it for today. There will always be more opportunities for future Medicaid unwinding updates, unfortunately, over the next couple of months. So I think this is a good place to leave it. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. Couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, pre-order a copy of Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always... Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.